Thou art the murmur in the gloom, the hinting tone, the haunting laugh. Thou art the adorner of my tomb, the minstrel of my epitaph. From the Dark Angel by Lionel Johnson. out there in the hinterlands. Welcome back. I'm Rock, and this is my co-host, Max. And as always, we're going to be your guides as we traverse the halls of all things supernatural here at Nightmares and Daydreams. Yes, yes, y'all. Rock and I are going to discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal, legendary, and monstrous, and fun. You are correct, sir. But Max, do you want to know what's not fun? What's that? Making a deal with infernal powers for money, fame, and influence, only to find it's hard to enjoy those trappings when the final payment you make is your immortal soul. To be fair, it's fun for a while. Mm, but can you ever really truly enjoy it? <laughs> That's like a balloon payment from hell. <laughs> exactly. Just don't do it. Reminds me of Devil Went Down to Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and according to the lore, the devil rolls about everywhere when he's looking to make a deal. I guess it all depends if he's in a bind and he's way behind. <laughs> I'm not a huge country music fan. But I love me some Charlie Daniels. That dude plays a mean fiddle. He does indeed. And I definitely agree. That song scared me when I was a kid. Very <laughs> sinister undertones. And then, of course, there's the line of Band of Demons joins in and it sounds something like this. It upped the creep factor for sure. The twist in that song is that Johnny wins the fiddle of gold and sends the devil packing, yeah? Yep. And that is a rarity because Old Scratch almost always comes out ahead in these bargains. Well, that's basically what we're talking about in this episode. Deals with the devil. Since it's the holiday season, we figured, hey, it's a perfect topic. <laughs> True, Max. You know, nothing screams holiday cheer like deals with the devil. Yes, sir. Tonight, we're going down to the crossroads and striking up that deal for fame and fortune. Only, it doesn't always work out like that, yeah? You know, as we'll get into later, it hardly ever works out in favor of the mortal. Which, when you think about it, why would it? Because you're going up against the devil himself, the greatest trickster in the multiverse. Yet, as we'll see later, there were those mortal men doomed to die who came away from the deal unscathed with unearthly powers and skills. Like nunchuck skills? And bow staff skills. Lucky. The only skills worth having, if you ask me. So in those rare cases, the devil didn't get his due? No, he was outfoxed on a few occasions, but again, it was a rarity. So Max, when you think about infernal packs... As I do... Pretty much all the time. <laughs> you know, you're certainly devious, but I seriously doubt you've ever pondered a dark deal for cash and prizes. Right. Anyways, uh, you think you can pick me up at the old crossroads outside of town tonight? Say, 12.05-ish? Have <laughs> some business to attend to. <laughs> you got it. Okay. Moving on. So when you think of Infernal Packs, who comes to mind? Me personally? Probably Dr. Faustus first, always. Yeah, the German wizard scholar. Classic tale. I'm sure our intelligent and attractive listeners and subscribers have heard the term Faustian deal. You know, for me, it's always been Robert Johnson. The late, great bluesman. Nice. 
You know where I first heard of him? Would it be that awesome mid-1980s movie, Crossroads? <laughs> no, I actually read a book on him. No. I did more than play video games and watch movies back in the 80s, you know. And there was also this magical place called Outside, where <laughs> we were banished once our parents had had enough of us watching too much TV. Yes, a truly magical place. So, no, I read a book on him back in the day. Damn, and here I thought we were going to do another sweet 80s movie review. Well, don't let me stop you. Permission granted. All right. All you guys got to know about Crossroads is that Ralph Macchio, yes, the karate kid himself, has a guitar battle with Steve Vai for his immortal soul. Also, it has 80s movie icon Jamie Gertz, who is also in The Lost Boys, as well as having an awesome soundtrack by Ry Cooter, one of us to Social Club. Not that I was obsessed with it when I was a kid or anything. See you in hell, blind boy. I don't endorse this movie, by the way. Well, it's so awesome it stands on its own. So, shall we get into a story on Dark Deals? Bring it on. On October 27, 1782, in Genoa, Italy, Niccolo Paganini was born to Antonio and Teresa Paganini. The third child out of six children, young Niccolo was tutored by his father in the mandolin at age four and quickly graduated to the violin by age seven. So fast and easy was his musical talent that people, even at that tender age, deduced that no child could be that good without otherworldly help. Rumors began to swirl that his mother had sold Niccolo's soul to the devil in trade for his talents. Darkly handsome and rakish, tall and hollow-cheeked and clad in black, Paganini possessed exceptionally long, thin fingers which allowed him to perform feats of music never before heard on the violin. It is said he could play a dozen notes per second. Add to the fact that he performed without sheet music, could play with amazing speed and dexterity, and that he never stood still on stage, letting the music move him about as if he were a marionette only added to the legend of his much-rumored infernal dealings. Paganini himself never refuted this. In fact, he encouraged it as it brought on an air of mystery to the musician. Some even thought that Paganini was the devil himself. Soon he fell into vice, women, and drink, and gambling. People began claiming that balls of fire and doppelgangers of Paganini with cloven hooves were sighted around his performances. As he neared the end of his life, his body racked by disease. He began to teach the violin and shied away from performing in public. He died on May 27, 1840 in Nice, France. It is said a priest coming to perform last rites on Paganini was angrily turned away by the violinist who claimed he didn't think he was about to die. Yet succumb he did. And to many people, his refusal of last rites only confirmed his infernal associations. And so much did the church believe he was in league with the devil that it denied him consecrated ground to be buried in. It wasn't until four years later when Pope Gregory XVI allowed his body to be laid to rest in Parma, Italy, giving the violinist a final resting place in his home country. Wow, I had no idea Niccolo was denied burial on holy ground. They really believed he made a deal, didn't they? Absolutely. I mean, he also encouraged the legend, so it's not too hard to see why the church wouldn't allow burial. The guy might have been playing for the other team, and I reckon it's sort of the 
you made your bed now lie in it kind of situation, literally. Sort of goes to show you how uber-talented people were perceived back in the day, though. If you were amazingly talented or gifted at something, some people just assumed the only way you could achieve that level was through diabolical means. Well, if by back in the day you mean like way back in the day, like hundreds of years ago, people lost their minds if their cow wouldn't dry. So who the hell had time for 10,000 hours of practice to become amazing at something? I mean, it's like, I have to plow this field, son. Put down that little wooden box with strings and come help. I get you. It's like, who has time for this nonsense? Much easier to make a deal. Only the wealthy and the nobility had time for that nonsense. Also, the Paganini legend kind of goes down the same road that many of these stories do. They make the deal, experience early success, wealth and worldly pleasures, and then as time goes on, things usually spiral downward and they end up alone and broken. Totally. Like we touched on earlier, folks. We mortals rarely come up smelling like roses in these stories. Okay, Rock, let's get into the specifics, location-wise, of the deal-makings. Where did one go if they were looking to make a deal? Well, according to the lore, there are many places. And most of these locations are in a, quote, in-between place. I read that some witches have gone to a beach and made their deals in areas between high and low tide. The most famous is, of course, the crossroads. So... Why crossroads? What's so special about those specific areas? I mean, there are crossroads everywhere. Again, it's because crossroads are an in-between place, neither here nor there where no power holds sway. The crossroads even have their own goddess, Hecate, which honestly sounds too much like Tecate. <laughs> I think we should have nachos and beer after the show. Hecate, one of my favorites. Ancient Greek goddess of crossroads, magic, moon, ghosts, necromancy. Dogs. Dogs? Hmm. Yeah, I read it in the pages of Hellboy. Mignola knows his lore. I trust him. Well, I like her even more now. Love me some canines. Shout out to Jinx and Rook. you better not be on the couch. It will never happen. You're right. They rule the house. All right, so Crossroads. The Britney Spears movie? I know you endorse that flick. For sure. That's right up there with Godfather. No, seriously. <laughs> All right, let's focus. I'm 100% focused right now. Okay, sorry. Let's tell our intelligent and attractive listeners and subscribers about the mythical Crossroads. Before we delve deeper in Crossroads, I want to mention a set of very specific instructions and in striking up a deal that I came across just real quick. And it was in the Key of Solomon. And it states that, okay, first, you must get up at dawn. Okay, I already don't like this ritual, man. Who wants to be up at dawn? I know, right? It's already too much trouble. Forget it. I'll do the 10,000 hours. You're just late from 9 to 5, but I'm not getting up at dawn. <laughs> okay, so be up at dawn. Then use a new knife to cut a fork-shaped wand. You hear that, people? Make sure it's a new knife. Straight out of the package. Yes, because you're playing with eternal fire if you dare to use an old knife for this ritual. Anyway, take a new knife and cut a fork-shaped wand from the branch of a wild nut tree that has never borne fruit. Then you take the wand, sacred candles, and a magic bloodstone to the site of a ritual, preferably a ruined castle or an abandoned mansion. That's the good thing about the living in the United States. Ruined castles everywhere, every street corner. Yep, dime a dozen in the U.S., as are shops that sell sacred candles and magical bloodstones, you know. They also have CBD, but... It's right next to the CBD oil. Magical bloodstones, sacred candles, <laughs> forked wands cut with new knives. Yes. <laughs> but we digress as we do, Max. Okay, let's focus. So, Max, the reason that you're at an abandoned castle or some out-of-the-way place is to make sure you're alone. And so that you're able to collect whatever treasure the demon brings you after you've struck up your deal. Last thing you want is someone horning in on your ill-gotten gains. 
So next, you draw a triangle on the ground with the bloodstone and place the candles in the triangle. Stand in the middle of the triangle now. Hold the wand that you just cut with a new knife and recite the correct incantations, which we will not include here. You got to go find those people. (laughs) So once you do that, do your deal and dismiss the demon when you're done. And boom, instant riches. Like an infernal ATM. Mm-hmm. Only the pin number is your immortal soul. I'd rather wait for a visit from the lottery Labrador. He's so super friendly when he visits. He's a good boy. Okay, Max. So getting back to Crossroads, we kind of went off the subject. We're back on. Obviously, they're everywhere. Crossroads in every town, every state, every country. But there are specific crossroads with dark, shall we say, reputations. And where might those be? Asking for a friend. I will be there to pick you up. 1205. <laughs> well, one infamous intersection seems to be in Mississippi, Clarksdale, Mississippi, to be exact. A place called the Devil's Crossroad, friendly place, and it's marked by three electric guitars mounted on poles. Legend has it that this is where the late great king of the Mississippi Delta Blues, Robert Johnson, sold his soul in exchange for mastery over the guitar. That said, Johnson was a rambling man who traveled and played all over the South. Some claim the crossroads in Dockery, Rosedale, Hazelhurst, and Beauregard, Mississippi, also claim to be the spots where the alleged deal went down. So let's talk about Robert Johnson a bit. What was his deal? Well, his deal was with the devil, or so the story goes. (laughs) So we know he allegedly made a dark pact. But what were the reasons people believed that? So the facts on Johnson can be a bit vague as far as personal history, but there are birth records that claim he was born May 8th, 1911 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. He went by several last names over the years before settling on his birth father's last name. Now, his mother married another man because his real father got run out of town. So Robert's new stepfather was a sharecropper, and Robert didn't want any part of that life. He saw the unfairness of it all. Yeah, sounds like a horrible situation. Yeah, and uh, Robert had zero interest in being a farmhand. He wanted to be a musician. That was his dream. That was his passion. That said, he married young, met the girl of his dreams, a uh, woman named Virginia Travis. Now, she came from a very religious family who didn't approve of him playing devil music. So to appease his wife and her family, Robert promised that he'd work in the fields to bring in money. Sadly, both Virginia and Robert's unborn child died during childbirth. Now, that left him alone to pick up the guitar again and hit the road. And after that horrible situation, legend claims that was when he really dedicated his life to music. And the thing is this, he didn't want to be just another musician playing on street corners or juke joints. He wanted to be the best. He wanted to be a star. Sounds reasonable to me. you got to go all in sometime. But why do people think he made a deal? Well, the one thing that seems to ring true is that he wasn't much of a guitar player. He apparently did play a little harmonica, but never the guitar. And according to his peers, after he disappeared for a while, he came back a changed player. Like, remarkably better? Amazingly better. So he came back on the scene and just blew people away, Max. Technique-wise, showmanship, songwriting, all that. Also, Sun House, who's a legendary musician in his own right, knew Robert and claimed that, you know, a young Robert was always fiddling with his guitar and, you know, Robert would follow Sun and another musician named Willie Brown around to different shows, always making a racket whenever he picked up a guitar. And according to House, Johnson was an adequate harmonica player, like we said earlier, but a terrible guitarist. So Sun claimed Robert disappeared from the Delta for about a year or so. Nobody knew where he went. He was just gone. Sun and Willie had a gig one night, and lo and behold, Robert walks in. 
and he asked Sun if he could play a bit, and Sun told him something along the lines of, like, you know these folks don't want to hear you're playing, Robert. Well, Johnson just smiled, tuned his guitar, and as they say, the rest is history. House was blown away, couldn't believe what he was hearing. Robert was using techniques they had never seen before, basically doing things with a guitar that his mentors couldn't do. And when those rumors started swirling about Johnson making a deal with the devil at the crossroads, well, Sun had an inkling that it just might be true. Wow. So Sun House's opinion was that Johnson did make the deal. You know, House never confirmed, but he didn't deny it either. And his opinion of Robert's ascent from beginner to master was almost too much to be believed. I mean, people had to put in years to get where he got. And then add to the fact that after his deal, many of Robert's songs had dark, sinister undertones. It is the blues. Sadness and dark undertones are kind of part and parcel of the genre, right? Sort of like, girl done me wrong, now the girl's gone. No, 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 you're absolutely right. And I see where you're coming from. You know, but his songs went beyond that. Song titles like Crossroad Blues, Hellhound on My Trail, Me and the Devil Blues. You know, they kind of cemented the belief and made the myth that surrounded the man even stronger. Also, take into account that he was always moving, an iterant musician to the core, one town to the next, always. Some folks believed he was running away from something. Huh. I don't know about that. Sounds like he could have, maybe like Paganini, just been rolling with it, trying to create an air of mystery around himself. Plus, new area, new money to be made. Of course, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. However, before his reemergence as a uh, changed player, during the time he was gone, Robert began associating with another musician by the name of Ike Zimmerman, who some folks believe learned how to play guitar with help from the underworld. Robert left the Delta and went down south back to his hometown of Hazelhurst, and this is where he hooked up with Zimmerman, who would kind of become his mentor. Also, and get this, this uh, Ike Zimmerman cat learned to play guitar by playing in graveyards at night. Well, that's where I learned to master Word and Excel. I mean, it's a common practice place. Really quiet. Good Wi-Fi, from what I hear. Yeah, exactly. So apparently, after hanging out and learning from this Ike Zimmerman guy, uh, Robert got the idea that he might make a deal of his own if the legends in that regard are true. But whatever transpired when he returned to the Mississippi scene, as we said before, he was an amazingly different player. So talk about a bad influence. I mean, my mom didn't want me hanging out with the bad kids, let alone people who were dabbling with dark powers. Yep, absolutely. But there are other accounts too, yeah? Yeah, and uh, those that think the whole Robert made a deal at the crossroads is nonsense claim that this mysterious Ike Zimmerman simply taught Robert how to play the guitar during the time he was gone. During that year, Zimmerman and Johnson apparently practiced almost nonstop, and the rumors were true. They did play in graveyards all around Beauregard, Mississippi quite a lot. Zimmerman enjoyed the peace and quiet and believed the spirits of the graveyard would help you learn the blues. He also told Robert that folks buried in the graveyard didn't care how bad you were. And that's where Robert Johnson learned his style of blues, according to some. No deal, no magic, just hard work, natural talent, and a mentor who helped him master the craft. It sounds feasible, if a bit creepy. And for sure the graveyard would be a good place to practice where no one would bother you, right? Happens all over Austin, I'm sure. Hipsters drinking Lone Star, plucking their mandolins in the wee hours. (laughs) Just playing those mandolins, man, drinking that star. Hey, you know, they're just keeping Austin weird, Max. Word. And, you know, that said, if I'm walking by a cemetery at night and I hear blues chords or hell, if I hear a mandolin being plucked, let's just say I'm making myself scarce, baby. You and me both. 
So another dark packed account was more traditional in that Johnson went down to the crossroads near Dockery Plantation with his guitar at midnight. He met a large man who we assume was a devil, who took Johnson's guitar, tuned it, played a couple of songs, and told Johnson that if he took back his guitar, the deal was sealed. Well, according to legend, Robert Johnson did indeed take that guitar back, and from that moment on, he was a master of the instrument. Sort of like Neo when he learned Kung Fu. (laughs) It was that fast. Instantaneous mastery of something that takes years certainly is a seductive idea. I mean, it'd be pretty damn tempting. Well, of course. But to pay beyond the ultimate price? Too much. I agree. But, you know, some folks don't agree. And for that, I'm glad because we have some great stories on this. So how did things go for Robert Johnson after his supposed deal? Well, you know, again, things get hazy. And this was before very succinct records were kept. No selfies in front of your next gig, huh? No, thank God, no. So was his also a story of early success and then things going badly toward the end of his life? You know, he apparently experienced some success, especially in the Delta. At least as much success as one could have in that era of the American South. He went to San Antonio, where he recorded 29 songs for the American record company that are still known today. While he never became super famous until after his death, his songs became small hits, and anytime he played a juke joint or house party, folks flocked to come see him. So local success for sure. How and when did he die? Well, he died early at that mystic age of 27, the same age that many other talented musicians and performers passed on after him. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, John Belushi, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain. They all died at 27 as well. But the exact date of his passing is August 17th, 1938. That in itself is very interesting, the whole 27 Club thing. Oh, yeah. So how did he die? Uh, Legends say he was poisoned by a club owner, some guy that had a juke joint called Three Forks, who suspected Johnson had slept with his wife. Robert was fond of drink, and some poison whiskey found its way into his hands that night. Damn, poison. That's rough. I know. His friend apparently knocked a drink out of his hand that night, thinking something was up. And Robert got upset and basically told him to mind his own damn business. So as the night progressed, another jar of poison whiskey found its way into Robert's hands, which he unfortunately drank. He suffered for three days before he died. And at insult to injury, legend claims locals buried him in unconsecrated ground because they feared the devil would invade the churchyard to claim him. Just like Paganini. Yeah, but then again, his burial places are no way agreed upon, with several places claiming to be the spot. And some folks claim that due to the era of his death and his relative poverty, Johnson was most likely buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. Sad. For sure. Another thing is he never had a ton of commercial success during his lifetime. Though his records were semi-popular, it wasn't until the 1960s that his music began reaching a wider audience. It will be decades after his death before the likes of Eric Clapton claimed Johnson was the greatest folk blues guitar player who ever lived, the greatest singer, the greatest writer. Keith Richards compared Johnson's guitar playing to Bach. Pretty damn amazing. He's definitely a legend now. Yep, no matter how you spell it. I agree. So let's shift gears and get into a story of the Black School in Spain, shall we? A place where literally the price of admission was your very soul. In Moor, Spain, either in Toledo or Salamanca, resided the Black School. It was a school of wizardry and necromancy where the brave or foolish wizards of Europe sought entrance in their relentless pursuit of magic. Every student knew the price of forbidden knowledge over the elements in man and beast was steep, 
for the headmaster of the black school was none other than Satan himself. Tuition was the very soul of those who dared study there, a pact signed willingly by every person who traveled down the winding staircase into the massive cavern sealed by iron doors. Tales abound of famous wizards whose schooling and mastery over the mystic arts were learned in the infamous school. The term of your schooling was either five or seven years, depending on the course of study and courage of the student. The schooling was silent, with no headmasters in sight, only books with pages that glowed enough to be read by. Questions asked aloud by students were answered the next day in glowing letters on their books. Food and drinks were laid on massive tables daily, where the students ate and drank their fill. The courage of the students came into question because the last student to leave each class after either seven or five years was the devil's prize. His pact was shorter than his classmates, ending at the large iron doors where the devil would take him body and soul. The longer you stayed and studied in the black school, the more powerful you became. But the risk was higher with each student who left before you as the glittering eyes from the cavern walls watched the class become smaller and smaller. The wizard Michael Scott, a graduate of the Black School, returned with an invisible servant and a massive tome called the Book of Might, which allowed Scott to summon and control demons. He created invisible musicians to entertain guests at the extravagant banquets he conjured up with but a word. And it is said he spied on kings and the nobility with scrying bowls and mirrors. Even with all his power, people tended to avoid the wizard, and after his death, the Book of Might was chained up and hung on the wall of the church near his grave, where for centuries after his death it hung undisturbed still. The locals refused to touch it, fearing it would release havoc on their town. However, a tale shows that even the devil can miss his mark. The Icelandic wizard, Sómundr the Wise, was the last to leave his class, and because the devil grabbed his shadow instead of the man himself, he lived to tell the tale. For the rest of his days, the wizard strolled the world shadowless, yet full of wizardly power, attended to by invisible servants that could spirit him across the globe with but a word, and he attained wealth undreamed of. Yet it is also said that at the end of his life, Solmunder's deathbed was awash with demons that waited for his soul to leave his body, assuring that the devil got his due. Well, that's pretty much the anti-Hogwarts. That's for damn sure. No Quidditch going on at that school. No sorting hat. It's like everyone's Slytherin from the start. <laughs> so let's talk about the packs themselves. Like the actual deals? Yeah, I mean, the nature of the packs, terms and whatnot. Gotcha. So the years vary according to the lore. Like, Faustus' deal was apparently for 24 years. And as far as Robert Johnson, there was never a mention as far as the length of the deal. Same with Paganini. And the examples we've come across, there are several where a term is not mentioned. So the pact could be written or oral, and the lengths varied. But they always involved summoning mm-hmm. or attracting the attention of some demonic being to grant you the favors you seek in return for your soul. And according to the lore, different demons offer different things. Wealth always seems to be a thing. Well, it's handy. True enough. Uh, love is another big one. Political power. So we talked about crossroads, but there were other methods as well. One is a magic circle. Yeah, you know, but according to the lore, that option was only available to already practicing wizards or scholars, and adept, as it were. 
The knowledge was very specific, and if you were not precise, the results could be catastrophic. Because of all the preparation that went into the circles, specific formula, symbols of power, names of God in different languages, size of two concentric circles, etc. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff to be learned, and you had to be super specific. So the summoning circles apparently were a place of safety for the person doing the summoning, right? Yeah, the wizard, scholar, summoner, what have you, had to stay in the confines of the circle during the incantation because the idea is whatever you're summoning is not from this world and doesn't have your best interest in mind. You summon this demon and step one foot out of the circle, it rips you apart. Again, the price you pay for a shortcut. Agreed. And some of the verbiage I've come across is that the summoner wants whatever or whomever he's summoning to appear in a fair form and not harm me. Things along those lines. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be grossed out. (laughs) You don't want to go all Cthulhu and go insane when you see this thing. Right. That's no, no good to anyone. And you know what's funny, actually, though, is, well, not like ha-ha funny, but there's a long list of well-known people that apparently made deals back then. Politicians, royalty, entertainers are on the list. And this could, you know, just be the nature of the way the church was perceived back then, but there's a relatively large number of priests on that list. Yeah, I noticed that. And yet I just wonder what favor was worth their soul. I don't know, maybe the papacy? Mm. Legend has it that some lower-ranked clergy attained the title of Pope with infernal help. And, you know, just so you guys know, we are not saying that. We're just letting you know that we came across info. It's a recurring theme in uh, Renaissance times, you know? Yeah, no stones are being cast or judgments being made. It's just super interesting. You know, one pope was Sylvester II, and uh, this guy was apparently a man of science. He spoke multiple languages and was quite the learned fellow. However, some say he was a sorcerer who had a female demon at his beck and call. Maybe because he didn't follow the status quo. He was branded as someone in league with the devil. Again, sometimes persons that excelled beyond the norm in whatever time period they're in were branded heretics or devil worshippers or what have you. It's like, that guy doesn't think like the rest of us. Must be a witch. Like the Vavitch movie that you're so fond of. <laughs> Black Philip for life. You know, another early story is that of Theophilus, who was the treasurer of the Church of Adana. Now, legend claims that this guy sold his soul so he could become bishop. And in several stories, Theophilus received redemption in the end, so apparently he wasn't all bad. Maybe the current bishop was doing a bad job. Could be. You know, I guess that would make a mid-level clerk risk his soul. Okay, so shifting gears back to the Vavitch. I just saw the <laughs> making of it, and uh, apparently Black Philip was a bit of an ass to work with. He was like headbutting the cast and crew, even broke a couple of the director's ribs. Nice. I mean, obviously he's a method actor. He is a huge black goat, so there you go. Let's shift back to Charlie Daniels' song, Devil Went Down to Georgia. That sort of thing happened as well. In the lore, the devil would appear to a person in distress and offer a deal for wealth, power, love, etc. You know, just a lay person, as it were. Makes sense. You know, there are only so many practitioners of the magic arts in this burg. Any tales on that? The devil appearing to ordinary folks as opposed to being summoned by adepts? I did run across a quick one involving the uh, wizard scholar, Roger Bacon. So in the story, Bacon was just kind of walking out one day on the streets of Oxford, and uh, he sees this young man sitting on a hill crying. And because Bacon was a kind man, he walked up to him and sat down next to him and asked him what was wrong, if he could help. Of course. Well, the young man tells Bacon that he had recently lost all of his inheritance on gambling and he was in debt. But the kid tells him that that's not why he's upset. He went on to say mysterious older man cloaked and clad in black appeared out of nowhere 
And he told the boy that he would pay off all of his debtors if the boy would become his servant until the debts were repaid. I don't like the sound of this. Yeah, you know, but the young man agrees. And his debts are paid. And then the older man reveals to him that he is... Let me guess. Right, that he is the devil. And now he owns the young man's soul. The kid protests, says he didn't know, and that he never would have agreed to the bargain if he had. So the devil gives him an extra day of freedoms because he tricked him. Not that great of a deal. Right, right. Well, Bacon hears the tell, and he becomes grim-faced. He tells the boy to relax. I'm going to stay with you tonight, and tomorrow I'll go with you when you're supposed to meet this person. So night goes by, and the next morning they both go to a wooded area where a hooded man in black is waiting for the boy. The man says Bacon cannot help the boy because the deal is sound. Bacon then asks to see the document the boy signed. The man pulls back his sleeve, which reveals no arm, only a disembodied hand, which is now holding the document. He gives it to Bacon, who looks it over, and tells the hooded person that the deal is null and void because this document says the old man agreed to pay off the young man's every debt. Yet clearly, the debt the youth owes the old man is still unpaid. (laughs) Trixie. So, yeah, he used the loophole, right? Roger Bacon makes a sign of the cross, starts praying in Latin and whatnot, and the older man disappears in a puff of smoke, leaving the young man free of the bad deal he accidentally made. This tale illustrates how the forces of darkness were casting a wide net in their deal-making schemes. Absolutely. Not every Joe Schmo in the world knows how to conjure up a being from the underworld for financial gain. For sure. Equal opportunity damnation is the name of the game. Quantity, not quality, Max. But all that said, there are some who seek out the devil. And like they say, when you stare into the abyss, sometimes the abyss stares back. So, sounds like we're getting into Dr. Faustus here. Time to talk about your boy. He ain't my boy. (laughs) But he is the kind of archetypal character that one might think of when you talk about deals with the devil, yeah? Not the devil, in this case, but a devil. Mephistopheles, to be exact. A prince of hell, a satellite demon, as it were. Legend said that if a summoner were to summon Satan himself, he would demand the summoner's soul up front. Satellite demon. Makes sense, I reckon. And mess not with hellish royalty, I always say. So, shall we hear Faustus's sad tale? Let's do it. Dr. Johann Faustus was a man of learning from the ancient university town of Wittenberg, Germany, in the mid-1600s. A prodigy, Faustus earned entry into the university at a young age, where he eventually achieved a doctorate in divinity and was given a prestigious teaching position. Little did the masters of the university know that behind Faustus' keen young mind, there thirsted a curiosity for knowledge far beyond what was taught in churches or schools. Faustus' behavior soon began to worry the headmaster at the university. He was sighted in unsavory parts of town, carousing with prostitutes, getting drunk with students, and causing disturbances. They cautioned him, but he paid them little mind, for he was popular with the students and seemingly had a passion for teaching. After some years, Faustus grew bored with his position in the university and bored with his vices, and began researching other avenues of enjoyment. Much to the relief of the university, he gave up his position and fell further into vice. Also, age had crept up on the doctor, and he sought to remedy that as well. 
He pored over grimoires and other forbidden books of magic. Books of dark learnings from the Middle East locked in the basements of the university found their way into his shaky, liver-spotted hands. Though his body was failing him, his mind was still sharp and he knew what he wanted. Youth. Youth. Power. Power. Money. Money. Women. Women. And thanks to his insatiable lust for knowledge and vast intellect, he found his answer. He could make a bargain with a prince of hell for all he wanted. This, then, became his all-consuming passion. At midnight, the old scholar left his chambers and wandered the dark streets of Wittenberg, making his way to the outskirts of town, to a secluded crossroad, that ever-changing, in-between place where, according to the books he researched, certain dark deals might be made. The doctor made his preparations, carefully creating the magic circle from which he would summon the demon Mephistopheles, with whom Faustus wanted to make his bargain, Symbols, words of power in Hebrew and Greek and lost languages made the outer part of the circle, which formed the barrier he hoped ensured his safety. This was the most important part, the magic circle. If he did everything the Book of Magic prescribed, he would be safe if anything was amiss. If the circle were broken, if a symbol was wrong, the demon might tear him apart. Finally, preparations complete, Faustus began his summoning chanting in Latin, alternating back to Greek, then Hebrew, culminating with the name of the demon he wanted to deal with, commanding Mephistopheles to appear in fair form and do him no harm. First, only deafening silence greeted him. He chanted again, commanding the demon to appear. The forest seemed to hold his breath before a ball of fire roared out from the woods and danced around the edges of the magic circle. The ball of fire grew to the size of a man, Soon a voice echoed in the clearing, Will you step out of your circle, Faustus? The wizard refused, and the negotiations began. Dressed and bejeweled as a sultan, Mephistopheles calmly stepped out of the ball of fire and regarded the old man. What is it you wish? Faustus told him, and back and forth the wizard and demon went. Faustus wanted youth. He wanted wealth and wizardly powers, but he refused to give up his soul. Mephistopheles assured him he could give him all he wanted and more, but he could not do it unless Faustus bargained away his soul. His masters simply would not allow it. Those were the demon's terms, and eventually Faustus accepted. His bargain would be made for 24 years, and Mephistopheles would provide him all he wished. The pact was signed in Faustus' own blood and ended with a string of blasphemies. Now my fun begins, Faustus said. The demon only smiled a secret smile. First, he regained his youth. Then he dove headfirst into wine, women, and amusing himself at the expense of others. Slights, both real and imagined, were repaid tenfold. It is said a black hound now traveled with Faustus, granting him protection and dark counsel. Mephistopheles spirited Faustus to witches' Sabbaths, allowed him to spy on and blackmail people. And the most beautiful women in the world traveled at Faustus' side. He could have used his powers for some good, yet time and again, the wizard took the low road, abusing those less powerful than he. Time passes, as time does, and soon the 24 years was at an end. Sensing his destiny was at hand, Faustus abandoned his drinking companions and women. He sent Mephistopheles away, telling the demon he had no more need of him. He began preaching the gospel, attending church services, and railing against the vices and sins of the flesh. As the exact hour approached, the wizard abandoned his home, going to an inn on the outskirts of Wittenberg. There he sat in a common room, wanting companionship as the final hour approached. A black hound appeared then at the inn, prompting Faustus to retire to his room with his Bible. 
As the church bells sounded midnight, a roar like the opening of a pit sounded in Faustus' room. A wind, strong and smelling of sulfur, pushed through the inn, causing doors to buckle on their hinges. Guests huddled deeper in their beds as a series of screams echoed from Faustus' room. The next morning, the innkeeper checked in on the doctor's room and discovered a charnel house. Blood and gore splattered the walls, his skull lying neatly on his bed, one eye missing, the other staring sightlessly at the horror around it. Not long after, neighbors of Faustus began reporting sounds like animals growling in his old home and a one-eyed skull staring from the windows late at night. Soon the house was torn down, and all that remained of Johann Faustus in Wittenberg was a cautionary tale. Damn, Dr. Faustus didn't go out easy. As you'd expect, right? No easy passings, no gentle walking into the light for those who tread this path. Am I right? Yep, man, that's rough. You know, that reminds me of that old Seinfeld episode where Elaine tells Putty they're going to go to hell, and he just replies in that deadpan voice, going to be rough. <laughs> yeah. <Man>, I, <laughs> I love that episode. <laughs> Not an old movie review, but hey, 90 sitcom. We had to throw something. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been as much in this particular episode to keep our attractive listeners who depend on us for our opinions of movies and shows. They no doubt seen a thousand times. What would they do without us? And it was a great episode. So in researching Faust and his bargain, we came across so much random additional stuff. For sure. Two different versions, Gittes and Marlos. So many different scenarios, dark deeds. Like he summons a demon that takes the shape of a horse that spirits him across the world so he could join all sorts of orgies. Mm. Or him going at it with priests who he thought wronged him by poisoning him. I like the one where he turned a bunch of bushes into warriors to thrash some knight that insulted him. That's a major conjuration there, baby. Or is that transmutation? Magic missile, magic missile, magic missile. <laughs> Evocation all day long. Stop throwing tennis balls at me, fool. Guys and gals, that's going to do it for us for this week's adventure. And uh, as usual, thanks for joining us. It means a lot. We know you all have a plethora of choices when it comes to podcasts of our ilk, and we sure appreciate your time. And as always, you know, please head over to Apple or whatever podcast platform you use and rate and review us. We really do appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And as always, tell your friends about our little podcast. Spread the word. We'd love to keep growing as our audience grows. So if you like what we do, share us with your friends. And your enemies. If you don't like what we do, share <laughs> us with your enemies. That'll tick them off. Exactly. And, you know, as usual, please go to our website at nightmarespodcast.net. Give us a tweet or like us on Facebook. Music is Calliope's Call by Teresa Joy. Find and follow her at Virebright at V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E on Facebook and Instagram. So until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>